Well, good morning. morning. Open with me. You're inspired. You're inerrant. You're infallible. You're all sufficient Bibles with me to the wonderful and to the captivating gospel of Mark. Seemed like a little trip down memory lane this morning with Brady gone and having Grant and Diana, the dynamic duo up here again. Thank you for that time of worship. It's good to go old school sometimes. In our time of worship, saints, it is critical to our walk in Christ. Our worship this morning is our opening salvo of reorienting our minds to truth. So many things in our workplaces and in our lives, in the media, even in our own hearts sometimes. All of these forces have spent the entire week making a frontal assault on truth. Bombarding our minds and our hearts with claims and accusations that are contrary to the word that we hold in our hands this morning. And that should be expected because we are in a war for the truth. Truth is not created, but is discovered. Truth that does not originate in ourselves, but is outside ourselves. Truth is external to us and we must discover it. We do not manufacture it. We do not have a truth that is specific to us. We do not make truth. We could no sooner create truth than we could create the cosmos. But thankfully, we need not be on a wild goose chase in the pursuit of discovery. Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospel of John what truth is and where it is to be discovered. John 17, 17 is short and sweet. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's it. It's right there. Your word is truth. Truth is singular and truth is knowable. And it's given to us in full measure. That's why we're here this morning. We are inundated with the wisdom of the world all week. And it engulfs us in it as we make our pilgrimage through this world. And we counter the lies and the deception just as Jesus did when he was tempted. When he was confronted with distortion and twisted thinking by looking at what is written. Your word is truth. And it is by that truth, what does the first part say? That we are sanctified. The word is truth, and we are sanctified by that truth. Not only by the power of the word, by the truth of the word, by the act of Jesus Christ on the cross as revealed in that word, are we not only positionally sanctified, meaning we're set apart as holy, but we are being progressively sanctified as well. The effect of his word ministered to us by the Holy Spirit is daily changing us more and more into the image of his son. As we are obedient to this truth, the truth, God changes us. God sanctifies us. And we are to desire this earnestly. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that sanctification process can leave us battered and bruised in a world that is hell-bent on stopping you, on dissuading you, or just getting you to take your eyes off the prize. You will get weary and wounded. And part of our joy as a church is to be a hospital, not only for those who have borne the hardship of living as pilgrims, as sojourners in this world, as followers of Christ, but we are a hospital as well for those who have labored and toiled under the weight of sin, who bear the scars given by a very hard taskmaster. We gather this morning under the word because it is truth. 
We cry out with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. So we pray that the Lord restore and rejuvenate his people this morning, that he reorient our minds, that he replenish our stores as we love people sincerely and we love God supremely. He will meet and touch every need. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we finished our two-part series entitled Our Biggest Problem. As the great physician, Jesus took a heart scope, he took x-rays, he drew blood, and he gave us a diagnosis of our condition, that our heart is desperately fallen, that out of ourselves come every type of sin and wickedness. And we were confronted with the truth that our biggest problem in, not, in life is not outside of us, but it's inside of us. It is what comes out of a man that defiles him, not what goes in. That despite what Proverbs 20, 16 said, 20 verse 16 says, that every man will declare his own goodness, that we are in fact helplessly fallen. But far from that being a discouragement to us, if we have learned Jesus' lesson rightly, it causes us to be a people that live in awe and wonder at a God who overcame our hostility to him with an irresistible grace that breathed life into a dead man and made us live. There was nothing good in us when he saved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And this hard truth, causes our love and our worship of God to only go down deeper. And it breeds a humility that should define the believer. And it should breed a gentleness and a compassion that is to define believers. We forgive because God forgave us. We love because God loved us. We're compassionate because God was compassionate to us. We are gentle because God could have crushed us. And yet he picked us up in his hand and he never lets us go. The response to seeing ourselves as we actually are and as we actually were before God saved us is to live a life of perpetual worship to such a merciful and a gracious God. And today, after what seems like quite a few weeks of some very hard-hitting messages, our text today has a stepping back from this intense personal introspection that was demanded of the previous verses and takes us with Jesus and his disciples to the region of Tyre. We're going to encounter an incredible story that has such an undercurrent of application and of doctrine and of theology, it rarely seems to carry the popularity that it should. So with that, let's have a look at our texts. Mark 7, 24 through 30. Mark 7, 24 through 30. Now Jesus stood up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he was wanting no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Greek of Syrophoenician descent, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we are in awe of this text. And Lord, as we will see, we are in awe of this woman, this Syrophoenician, from whom we have so much to learn. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would abide with your word. I ask that you would attend to this text with us, teaching us all that we would learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many are familiar with the ship called Titanic. What many may not know is that the Titanic had two sister ships as well, the Britannic and the Olympic. And the Olympic was the first to sail, and on board was a ship's nurse by the name of Violet Jessup. And on a voyage, the Olympic collided with the warship and nearly sank. And thankfully, Violet managed to escape with her life. But now with the Olympic gone, Violet's next assignment as a ship's nurse was on a little ship known as Titanic. And we all famously know Titanic's fate. And miraculously, Nurse Violet was one of the few survivors of that fateful night. And yet in a show of complete dedication to her profession, even after suffering through the Olympic and the terror of the Titanic, she accepted yet another post on the last sister ship, the Britannic. And on a fateful voyage, the Britannic hit an underwater mine and sank. Violet survived yet again. Nurse Violet Jessup survived all three. By all rights, she should have easily died on the first. She most certainly should have died on the second. And the third survivable was nearly unthinkable. And yet she lived to tell of all three. Everything in her circumstances said that she should have died. She had everything going against her. She would have had what we'll call the worst luck in the world. And yet kind providence reached out against every odd and spared her life. Well, today we're going to encounter just such a woman, a woman who had everything going against her, a woman who had no chance in a million of receiving what she is going to receive today because of her circumstances, because of who she was, because of where she was. Impossible. Better odds of being on three sinking ships in a row than living to receive the miracle she is about to receive. We're going to witness a bold and a brash faith from a most unlikely person in a most unlikely place. This is such a rich story. So rich. So let us look at our text as we're introduced to one that scripture refers to as the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile woman. Beginning with verse 24. Now Jesus stood up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Let's stop there. We have much to see in this first line. Up until this point, we know very well that Jesus had largely constrained his ministry to the areas around Galilee, right? Around Capernaum. The bulk of Jesus' ministry was unto the Jews. It was to Israel with occasional and rare travels into Gentile land. And scripture tells us clearly that Jesus' first mission was to Israel. It was to the lost sheep of Israel. Now what that means we'll cover later in our text, but we see this pattern very clearly, don't we? Now, here in this first line of our text is a subtle sea change in Jesus' ministry. It's not done with great fanfare. Jesus standing up and saying, you know what? I I rebuked a lot of you, you hard-hearted people. You've rejected me for the last time. I'm out of here. I'm shaking the dust off my sandals. No, it just says that Jesus stood up and went away. But Jesus' actions are not at all unexpected. Jesus' journey deep into Gentile territory is not unexpected. All the way back to Psalms in Psalm 87. What does the psalmist say? Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. 
Salvation is coming to these places. The light of the gospel is going to shine in these places. Philistia and Tyre and Cush. Gentile as Gentile can be. Cush is modern day Ethiopia, right? And who do we see bringing the gospel back to Cush? After having been baptized by Philip in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. And oh, what would the Jews do with these kinds of verses in the Psalms? But cup their ears and run, right? Even the dust of the Gentiles land was intolerable to the Jews. They were the seed of Abraham. You all are dogs. And that is exactly how they treated them. They really suffered from the Jonah complex, didn't they? Jonah got very mad when God didn't take pity on the Gentiles. He didn't want them to repent. Jonah wanted them to be wiped out. The Jews could not even fathom that God's plan of salvation extended beyond the borders of Israel. It's unthinkable. Jesus was ordained to go to these lands from the foundation of the world. He would go to the Gentiles. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, who are these other sheep? They're Gentiles. They're Gentiles. And in fact, after the light had shone so bright in Capernaum, after their rejection to that light was so complete, as Jesus now begins the final stretch of his earthly ministry, Jesus contrasts the Jews with the Gentiles. Both Matthew eleven twenty one and Luke ten thirteen, he says, "Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." So, where is Jesus going today? Jesus is going deep into what the Jews would consider enemy territory, defiled territory, heathen, pagan, idol-worshipping territory. Jesus is going to Tyre. Now, we've talked about this area in previous messages, but just a brief recap. Tyre is a coastal city. It's about 35 miles from Capernaum. It's often paired together in different writings with its sister city, Sidon. Is also on the coast, very close by. These are ancient cities. They have a very long, established reputation. This wasn't in any old Gentile city. This was basically the capital of the Gentile cities. But not only that, but this is the epicenter of Baal worship. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where it was established, and it really never left. Now, we don't have time to go over the societal and the practical effects that, that Baal worship had on a society, but suffice to say, it was not good. Do we all remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Do we remember Jezebel, who wanted to chase Elijah down and kill him? Jezebel was the princess of where? Of Tyre. Of Tyre. All 450 prophets of Baal that were killed were headquartered out of Tyre. So do we get just a little flavor of this place that Jesus is going to? It's bad, bad stuff. It's the kind of place any self-respecting Jew would not be caught dead in. And yet, Scripture says that the light is going to shine there. Salvation is going to come to Tyre. And in fact, their hearts are softer than the Jews that Jesus was leaving behind. And that's the pattern. The greater the resistance from the Jews, the more that Jesus is going to go to the Gentiles. And this journey Jesus is about to very unceremoniously begin 
is quite the long one. It's really a full-on Gentile journey. After leaving Tyre, and in our scene today, we'll see, Dr. John MacArthur, he traces Jesus' route the best that I've seen. And he writes, I'll quote, Then he went 20 miles north, and he went through Sidon, the sister city. We don't know how long he was there. And then he followed the highway east, back across the mountains of Lebanon. A very circuitous route, even going further north than Sidon. And going through the mountains, and then down to the south, east of the Sea of Galilee, and then back toward the Sea of Galilee in the middle of Decapolis, which didn't begin until the southern part of the Sea of Galilee was a Gentile area called Decapolis. That's the Greek word for ten cities, we recall that. This is a very long trip. He would have walked at least, if he took the direct route, 120 to 150 miles. This journey took weeks, possibly months, close quote. So I want you to have this geography context in your mind as we're now into Jesus' final year of earthly ministry. Be able to visualize Jesus' path because it helps us to see how we're building toward that culmination that will end with Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem. Not only that, but let us remember who Mark is writing to as well. His gospel is one written to the Gentiles, which, by the way, that's you and me. And as I've mentioned before, all the Gospels were written for us. But Mark, Mark was written to us. That makes it very special. Jesus is going to Tyre. He's going to Sidon. He's going to Decapolis. He's healing and he's ministering in these areas. This is a bullhorn to both the Jews and the Gentiles that Jesus is Savior of all. Had the Jews been willing to lay down their pride and read their own Torah with hearts to hear, they would have known this. They would have known this, that Messiah would be the Savior of the Gentiles as well. It's all over Scripture. Now back to our text. Now Jesus stood up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he was wanting no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. Well, a few things to see here. Jesus was not wanting anyone to know that he was in this particular area. He was trying to escape notice. Well, what gives there? I thought Jesus was going to the Gentiles. Well, yes, but we also need to realize that Jesus has another, if we can say, even higher duty at this point. Jesus needs to pour into and he needs to be training his disciples. Time is short and none of us are fast learners, are we? No. This verse is showing us that Jesus was wanting this to be some private time with, his and his, with him and his disciples. And yet the logical question pops up, how do these people know who Jesus is? This is all the way on the coast entire. There's no ministry has happened here up until this point. But if we look back earlier, all the way back to Mark 3, if we turn just a few pages back in your Bibles, Mark 3, verses 7 and 8, Mark 3, verse 7 and 8, what do we see? Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Hmm. Jesus was well known in this area. Thousands had taken the message back to these coastal towns and the word had caught like fire. The thronging was perhaps less intense than we saw from some of the crowd scenes we've seen in the past. But nevertheless, Jesus could not hide. 
And as we will see, you definitely cannot hide from a determined mother, a desperate mother. Now, Jesus is always the star of the text, but we're finally going to be introduced to the co-star of our text, the Syrophoenician woman. Verse 25, verse 25. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, at this point, we know little of the woman. It's actually not until verse 26, but we have a little more information about the daughter. Now, the word here is little daughter. Now, little meaning unmarried. So she was likely around 10 years old. We're guessing a bit there, perhaps even slightly younger. But what's happening with this little girl? It says that she had an unclean spirit. Now, Mark could have used the word for demon possession, but he didn't. He says that she has an unclean spirit. It's a different word, akathardos. This is giving us the connotation that there was some kind of immoral activity that was associated with this little girl under the influence and the possession of the demonic. How awful for a parent to see. I don't need to elaborate on this, but we do need to understand it if we're to understand the, the anguish and the desperation of this mother. Demon possession happens. It's as real today as it was in Jesus' day. The exception being that Jesus' presence really tended to stir them up. So here our text says the woman after hearing him. Jesus, she knew who Jesus was, didn't she? She knew who he was. In fact, given her later responses, given the tenacity of her faith, the knowledge of her place, who Jesus came for, the list goes on. She knows Jesus. Now, this gives us every reason to believe that she was very well in that crowd that we read about in Mark 3. And why not? You live in Tyre. Your daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit in the most foul of ways. You've no doubt gone to the temple of Baal. You've tried everything. This situation is horrible. Wouldn't you walk 35 miles to see what you've been hearing about? I would. And given her desperation, we think she has as well. This is not her first time laying eyes on Jesus. In fact, her later responses are going to go much farther than that. We will see that this woman is coming to faith. More on that as we get there. So our text says she immediately came and fell at his feet. All right. There are about 10 things wrong with that right there. She's a woman. He's a rabbi. He's Jewish. There's ceremonial problems, moral problems, everything in the world wrong with this woman throwing herself at Jesus' feet. But what else is present? What else presents an obstacle? Now we're going to get a little more insight. Verse 26. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Greek of Syrophoenician descent. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Okay, so she's Greek. She's Syrophoenician. And if we look at Matthew's account of this, he identifies her as a Canaanite. Now it's getting interesting if we break it down. As a Canaanite, these people were loathed by the Jews. Why? Because they weren't even supposed to exist God told us to kill all of you. You shouldn't even be here. You're lower than low. God himself told Moses to exterminate you. It was a loathing disgust for the Canaanites. But wait, there's more. She is Syrophoenician. She's Syrophoenician again as well. I won't get into the geography of that, but essentially Phoenicia had been annexed to Syria under Roman rule. So what that means is that the woman would also have been associated and would also be worshiping all the Roman gods 
as well. She was corrupted and defiled by them as well in the eyes of the Jews. So she's a Canaanite. She shouldn't even be alive in their eyes. She's Syrophoenician. She's worshiping all the Roman gods as well. And where does she live? Tyre. Headquarter and ground zero for what? Baal worship. Oh, it doesn't get any worse than this woman in the eyes of a Jew. Her gender, her ethnicity, her origin, in terms of even thinking that she would get help from a Jewish Messiah from Galilee, this woman is the nurse Violet Jessup of the Bible. She has three massive strikes against her. She has no chance. Every aspect of this woman is a sinking ship. There's no chance to survive, no chance for help. Gentile, Canaanite, Syrophoenician, a woman. She is so far outside the covenant with Israel, she has no chance. But Nurse Violet Jessup, she lived. She lived. What is this woman doing? Back to our text. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. It's very important things to see here. If she's asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter, what does she know that Jesus can do? That he can cast the demon out of her daughter. She knows what Jesus can do. But here's where it gets so very interesting. And she kept asking him. Now, some of you are getting very good at your verb tenses now. This phrase, kept asking, is in the imperfect tense, meaning that it was continual. She was pleading again and again. But what, is she, but what she is pleading tells us so much. Yes, it's true that she was crying out for Jesus to, to cast out this demon. But there's so much more to what she's saying. We need to rotate the gospel diamond to Matthew's account of this very quickly. It sheds monumental light on what this woman knows, what she's asking for. Matthew 15, verse 22, we'll put it up on the slide. No need to turn there. Matthew 15, verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Whoa, that's an all stop. Now we know that she was in the crowds of those thousands back in Mark 3. This is a messianic term. This is a Jewish term. You are in Tyre. You're in enemy territory. You're in the country of the antagonists all the way back from the days of Moses. Talk about unlikely. One of our favorite movies in our house is a, an old BBC production of C.S. Lewis's novel, The Silver Chair. And in that movie, they're, they're searching for the lost Prince Rillian. And on their journey, they have to watch for the signs that they were given to find this prince. And one of the signs was the, great, was the first person to use the name of the great lion king, Aslan. And they must do whatever that person says. So finally, this small group of adventurers, they, they find themselves in an underground world having fallen down into a mine shaft. And it was the darkest place in the world. It was an evil place. It was ruled by an evil queen. In the midst of this most unlikely of places, they see the sign. A seeming enemy, a mean and hostile person in that dark world uses the name of Aslan. They couldn't believe their ears when they heard it. In this place of all places, this can't be right. Such light in the midst of this darkest of places. Such as it would be to hear a woman in this place, of this origin, of this descent, cry out, O oh Lord, Son of David! No way! Entire 
No way displayed in this woman is such humility, such brokenness. This is like the publican, the sinner praying at the temple, Lord, have mercy on me. And we know that it's mercy alone she's beseeching. Because to use the name of the son of David is to say that you're the Jewish Messiah and I'm a Canaanite. I know that I have no right to ask anything of you. I'm the least likely person you would ever help. This story has more one in a millions the more that we dig. But in our text, we notice that she had to keep asking. It says she kept asking. Now, this tells us that Jesus is not responding. He's not responding which really ushers us into some of the most fascinating parts of this telling. Why was Jesus not responding? Why, after calling him by a name that would have stopped them in their tracks, does Jesus not respond? Let's rotate our diamond back to our text in Mark and pick it up in verse 27. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Well, this just keeps getting more interesting. So what exactly is happening here? Is Jesus being unkind? Is Jesus being unloving towards a woman that was in unspeakable pain and shame from her daughter's condition? And did Jesus just call this woman a dog? A dog. How rude. You thought your pastor was direct, right? So what's going on here? Well, first principles first. If you read something in Scripture and it seems to contradict something else in Scripture, we're reading it wrong. We interpret the unclear in light of the clear. So is Jesus ever unloving or uncaring or uncompassionate in Scripture, especially toward those who are hurting? No, never. A broken and contrite spirit, he will never turn away. So if we read a verse like this that seems to look like that, we know that we need to keep digging because we're missing something. Our goggles are out of focus. Let's look closer at our text. Let the children be satisfied first. This is speaking of the Jews. Jesus came first to the Jews, to the house of Israel. That's repeated all over scripture. Paul repeats it in Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let the children be satisfied first. This word for satisfaction, it's it's a term that's actually used for cattle, talking about putting all the food out there that that livestock could eat, that they would eat until they they were stuffed. That's the satisfaction. We see the same word used when Jesus fed the 25,000. They ate until they were satisfied. Not another bite, thanks. Like Christmas at the Perez's house, right? Not another bite. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. What is the bread? The word. Better yet, who is the bread? Jesus is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. And I have come to give myself, to give my word first to the lost sheep of Israel. And it is not good to take that benefit, to take that prize, and throw it to the dogs. Boy, that sounds harsh. But here's where the Greek is going to bail us out. Thank goodness for the Greek. There are two words that can be used for dog in Greek. One is the word for a vicious street dog, kuon. They were dirty scavengers. They were wild. They roamed the streets. They attacked people. They would never be let into a house. And when the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs, they used this harsh word, kuon. Jesus doesn't use that word here. He uses the word kunarion. 
This is a little dog. This is a house dog. This is one that you would keep as a loved pet. So yes, there's a difference between Jews and Gentiles. One is sitting at the table right now, and the other is a little dog under the table. But you'll notice they're both in the house. They're both in the house. This is the part where most would get huffed and puffed and they'd walk away insulted today, wouldn't they? But what's Jesus doing here? Why is he not responding, making her, forcing her to, to beg and to plead? I'll tell you why. Jesus sees something in her. He has heard her. He has heard how she has addressed him. He has seen right into her heart as only Messiah can. And guess what he saw? A very unlikely faith. Raw, stubborn, brash, bullish faith. The real stuff, the gritty stuff, the faith that fights. And here of all places is this unlikely, massive faith. And if we read Matthew's account, Jesus calls it exactly that. This woman has a faith that is not only placed in the right person, in the right object, in a region that's awash in pagan worship, but she is tenacious. Lord, son of David. Everything in her, in her culture, in her upbringing, every social norm said she should not be at Jesus' feet right now. And yet not only does Jesus not respond at first, he doesn't respond. But when he does respond, tells her that she's a house dog and Jesus has only prepared the meal for the children right now. My ministry is not to the Gentiles yet. There will be a day, but today is not that day. But Jesus knows her tenacious faith that's inside. He saw it the moment she fell at his feet. And if we look at Matthew's account, the disciples, of course, they were clueless, right? And his disciples came and begged him, he says in Matthew, saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. There's a lesson of faith to be given here, and Jesus is going to give it. And first, he is going to draw it out of this woman by rebuffing her, and he is about to show his disciples not only that he is Savior of the Gentiles, but that real faith resides here. If G- is Jesus being Savior? And a question, is Jesus being Lord and Savior of the Gentiles a lesson that the disciples are going to need to know? Is the fact that this tenacious faith can be found in the most unlikely place in the heart of a pagan land something that the disciples might need to know? How many of these disciples who failed to see the faith in this woman who wanted to send her away because she wasn't worthy of the master's time would later die as martyrs bringing the gospel to foreign lands, to Gentiles? Many would die, bringing this gospel not to the Jews, but to people just like this woman. This woman needs to exercise her faith, and the disciples need to see what they missed. Her response in verse 28 will make you fall in love with the Syrophoenician woman. Verse 28, Mark 7, verse 28. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. What a lady. All of these things working against her. The disciples trying to run her off. She knows she's a Canaanite staring at the son of David, the one who has come to the house of Israel. She knows all of these things. Yet her response is amazing. Sharp wit, clear mind. It's brilliant and it's humble. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. First words. The first words of faith to the Lord are yes. 
Yes, you are correct and you are Lord. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. I don't need a seat at the table. I know I'm not worthy to sit at that table. You're right. There's no argument there. I have no merit to bring. I'm stripped bare of any expectation. Only you can save my little girl. You are the son of David. You are the Messiah. All other gods have failed me. I have sacrificed to every altar entire. No doubt. I beseeched every deity I know, but none are the Lord. None are the son of David. The most massive faith we see in a most unlikely place. Now compare that to what Jesus just left in Capernaum and among the Jews. Here I am, your Messiah. I give of myself freely. I teach you freely. I healed all who came. I fed all who came. You were blinded by the very light of me standing among you. And yet those to whom Jesus came, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, they hardened their heart. They rejected the light. They hated him for even bringing the light. His own family rejected him in Nazareth. Not here. Look at this faith and a learned faith quick on her feet. Yes, she knows that you're going to pour out the blessings on Israel first and you're going to do so to the point that their cup runneth over. But it will run over, Lord. It will run over. And when it does, could I but have the runoff? Could I but have the runoff? Could I bet, could I but have the crumbs of the bread? What Jesus does now for the woman is no compromise. He is not changing his mind or doing something out of order. It was always the plan. Paul writes in Romans, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Talking about the Jews? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, meaning the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? As the Jews reject it, Jesus goes to the Gentiles. That's the pattern in Scripture. He fills their cup. They do not drink. The rich is now pour onto the Gentiles. Can you visualize that? But I have no doubt Isaiah 11, verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. In fact, the only other place that we see Jesus standing amazed at the level of faith besides this woman was who? A Roman centurion. Again, a Gentile. A Gentile. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Woe to those who knew! Woe to those who had every opportunity to know! You didn't grow up in North Korea with a single sheet of Scripture to cling on to. You lived in the Bible Belt with a church on every corner. Woe to you! Such light is given to you. Such knowledge. If I gave this to the people in North Korea, they would have torn their clothes in repentance. Such an unlikely faith from this Syrophoenician woman. In the the last place that you would ever expect to find it. Our last verses now. How does Jesus respond? Amazing. Verses 29 and 30. I'll read them as one. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. Go. 
the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Jesus doesn't need to go to the daughter. He doesn't even need to speak to the demon from there. He just says, it's done. He's master and he's Lord. And I love the way verse 30 begins and going back to her home. She knew it was done. Normally an exorcism would be a much more involved thing. certainly an on-scene event. No, Jesus simply says it's done. And she leaves without a doubt. She goes home. Amazing faith. There lies her child. Her being in bed shows us that the battle that had taken place with that demon was horrendous. She was exhausted. What it did to that little girl. Now I venture to guess that that household, that neighborhood would never be the same. You know, we read these kind of stories. We often think of them in kind of a vacuum. We read them, it happened, and now the story's over. But that story's not over. The effect of that woman's faith are felt today. It ripples through space and time. This person told this person, and this person told this person, and because of that, this person went here and here and here. And you and I are Gentiles. We're Gentiles. This story may well hit closer to home than we realize. We were all dogs under the table. We have no right to be here this morning. We would be content with the crumbs from our master's table. But in such great love, in such great mercy, Jesus doesn't leave us there. By the power of the cross, having been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, we can now be called friends of God. We have a seat at the banquet hall, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there is yet room at that table. To those who would come in repentance and faith, the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, as unlikely a candidate as you might be, whatever your previous life might have looked like, you come in tenacious faith. You throw yourself on his mercy. There is still yet a seat at the master's table. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the tenacious and unlikely faith of this woman. Lord, we are heirs of her faith. Lord, we have been grafted in as Gentiles. And Lord, we know that we were not worthy. We were not worthy to even receive the crumbs. But Lord, you have called us friend through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And you've given us a seat at the table. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would watch over the flock this week. We ask that you would continue to shepherd their hearts. We ask that you would give them boldness. We ask you would give them strength. We ask you would protect them body, mind, and soul. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.